0: And welcome to the Natacast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 193rd episode of the Natacast, titled, Gorging on Grief, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Arya Eight, in which George runs through the Brotherhood's greatest hits, fire magic, woods witch visions, abandoned villages, oh my before Arya runs off with her new best friend, Sandor Clegane. Well, maybe
1: best is too much. And friend. He sure is there, that much is certain. In the business, we call this a buddy comedy, but they aren't buddies, and no one's really laughing here. Even when Sandor laughs, he kind of sounds angry about it. Not having a
0: great time. So our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for the five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from our patron, Weirwood Allen, follower of the Edicts of Game and Pale Hair, appreciator of Shit Mouth and Defense counsel for Sandor the Gain. First, just want to say that I love the show. It's one of my two favorite A Song of Ice and Fire podcasts, the other being Learned Hands, where I learned about this great show when Jeff made a guest appearance. On to my question. What do you think the important plot beats of Arya's story will be in Winds and Dream? I believe that she will likely hitch a ride back to Westeros with Justin Massey, as you all have said, and that after the war with the others she will sail off to adventure in some form like we saw in the show, frozen needle foreshadowing aside. But what happens in between? Will she meet and perhaps give the gift of mercy to Lady Stoneheart? Will she help bring Littlefinger down? Which Starks will she reunite with and in what circumstances? What will she do with her faceless men and working skills and the political and magical conflicts afoot in Westeros? Will she triumphantly airdrop onto and one-shot the Night King, a character who, in his current form, doesn't exist? Feel free to address any or all of these ideas. And please express any socialisms you may find relevant in analyzing the above while Jeff's away. Now is our chance. I've caught up to the current episodes, and I'm so excited to be able to re-experience The Red Wedding in hideous real-time with the rest of the not bunch. Eternally grateful for your thoughtful analysis, humorous synopses, and brutal takedowns of the worst theories our fantasy fandom family has to offer. So thank you for the question, Weirwood Allen. And what do you think, Manu? I think, uh, yeah, I like the end game for Arya too. But what do you what do you think? What do you see as like the next couple steps uh, post Bravos for her?
1: Okay, so this is actually kind of tricky because, as uh, uh, Weirwood Allen laid out, there's a lot of you know plausible mm-hmm. uh, ideas here because uh, her story has touched on a lot of things, and a lot of things would feel appropriate for her to you know pass along on the way to the end game. I'll say I don't think she takes down the Night King. Um, Big point in my favor is the Night King doesn't exist. (laughs) Uh, But also, I just really... Um, I understand what the show is doing there. Um, I think they could have pulled it off better, but I still just don't see that as really a true endpoint for her. Um, I also don't really see her taking down Littlefinger. Um, Again, I can see why the show would want to go there, but that just seems more like Sansa's boss to fight uh, than it is Arya's. I think she comes with Justin Massey. That's something I've always been a fan of, Um, and that I do think Lady Stoneheart is a good destination for her, or at least something to kind of wrap up with her even... It gets tricky because Brienne and Jamie could seemingly also be like the ones who take out Lady Stoneheart, but um, I think... There is something to the fact we're coming up on the Red Wedding and we have that just near miss with Arya and then Rob and Catelyn and then Arya possibly seeing her mother like this, especially if it's in the Riverlands. I feel like there's just a lot of stuff that George has already written that he can play with. Um, So I see that as being nice. And I think she will reunite with Jon in some fashion. Um, That might even happen sooner rather than later, even before any kind of Lady Stoneheart stuff, just because if she comes back with Justin Macy, I think she'll be in the north. Uh, So that just kind of puts her in proximity to John, whether or not he's alive or dead at this point, you know, who's to say. Um, but this is one of the few I wouldn't say few, but one of the characters where I could see her going in a lot of directions. Um and all of them would still feel kind of appropriate for what we've gotten from her so far.
0: Agreed. Arya is one of those characters that I think has a bunch of different potential paths in front of her. Unlike, you know, John, who I think the next couple steps for him are pretty clear, you know, come back to life, be king. Arya is one of the more Arya is one of the ones like Davos where I'm like this could this could go in a bunch of different directions I do think Justin Massey makes sense as the ticket home I've always thought that when we find out in Theon's released Winds of Winter chapter that Stannis is sending Justin Massey uh, to Bravos to to get him some cell swords. I'm like, that's a that's a natural connection, especially since Justin Massey might end up taking uh, not Arya Stark, might, up, <laughs> might end up taking Jane Poole along. That fits beautifully if, if Arya's ticket back is, uh, you know, since Arya's a, in training to be a faceless man and is putting on other people's faces, it would be perfect if the way she gets back is seeing someone else play as her, as Arya Stark. That would be great. And yeah, I think Stoneheart is in the works and I think the Riverlands also makes sense because Arya's got to get back together with Nymeria at some point. Who knows, you know, if permanently or not, but that's got to happen and that's where Nymeria is. She might also be the vessel for Sandor to get back to the story, uh, unlike the show. So I think that that makes sense for her too. You know, again, geographically, how you make that happen is one of the things that's leading George to to tear his hair out endlessly. But I think those those are the major character beats that I think you would feel the lack of. You know, I think there are other things that she could do that if you didn't happen, you'd kind of shrug your shoulders and forget about it. But yeah, I think, yeah, a Stoneheart, I think, has to happen, especially given that Arya, as Nymeria, pulled her from the water and was so close to reuniting with her at the Twins. I, you know, I, I could definitely see Jamie and Brienne just wrapping up that plot line and moving on, but I, I feel like it has to be Arya. We'll see. We'll see. One hopes. So thank you so much to Weirwood Allen for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our Sworn Sword and Higher Tier patrons get to ask us questions, as well as get access to exclusive episodes, early access to our regular episodes, and a bunch more benefits. But we are here today to talk about A Storm of Swords Arya 8, so let's jump into the synopsis. When Arya saw the shape of a great hill looming in the distance, golden in the afternoon sun, she knew it at once. They had come all the way back to High Heart. You remember High Heart? From, like, four Arya chapters ago? I'm glad she's making so much progress. Arya wanders the hilltop with Beric Dondarrion's squire Ned, watching the sunset. They're above the rain, but not above the wind. It tugs at Arya's clothes and makes her think of ghosts. High Heart's supposed to be haunted, after all. Then again, so was Harrenhal. You know what, Arya, maybe you're the common denominator here. Speaking of the supernatural, they come across Thoros staring into a fire. Ned says the Red Priest sometimes sees visions there. Arya tries to do it too, but just gets watery eyes for her trouble. Gendry wonders if Thoros can really see anything in the flames. Gendry's former master always said Thoros was an alcoholic con man who gave priests a bad name. That was unkind. Thoros chuckled. (laughs) True, but unkind. "'Who was this master of yours? Did I know you, boy?' "'I was Prentice to the Master Armorer Tabo Mott, on the Street of Steel. You used to buy your swords from him.' "'Just so. He charged me twice what they were worth, then scolded me for setting them afire.' Thoros laughed. "'Your master had it right. I was no very holy priest. I was born youngest of eight, so my father gave me over to the Red Temple, but it was not the path I would have chosen. I prayed the prayers, and I spoke the spells, but I would also lead raids on the kitchens.' And from time to time they found girls in my bed. Such wicked girls. I never knew how they got there. I had a gift for tongues, though. And when I gazed into the flames, well, from time to time I saw things. Even so, I was more bothered than I was worth. So they sent me finally to King's Landing to bring the Lord's Light to seven besotted Westeros. King Ares so loved fire it was thought he might make a convert. Alas, his pyromancers knew better tricks than I did. King Robert was fond of me, though. First time I rode into a melee with a flaming sword, Kevon Lannister's horse reared and threw him, and his grace laughed so hard I thought he might rupture. The red priest smiled at the memory. There was no way to treat a blade, though. Your master had the right of that, too. Fire consumes. Lord Beric stood behind them, and there was something in his voice that silenced Thoros at once. It consumes. And when it is done, there is nothing left. Nothing. Beric, sweet friend. The priest touched the lightning lord on the forearm. What are you saying? Nothing I have not said before. Six times, Thoros. Six times is too many. He turned away abruptly. Well, that turned very dark very quickly. Let's go back to Thoros' glory days as a horny acolyte. That sounded fun. That night, while the wind and the wolves compete to see who can howl the loudest, Arya sees someone small and pale making her way up the hill. It's the woods witch she saw the last time they were here, her eyes glowing red in the firelight, just like Jon's wolf. Another ghost, Arya thinks. She sneaks closer to check it out. The ghost of High Heart approaches Thoros, Lem, and Barric by the fire, calling them respectively The Ember, The Lemon, and The Lord of Corpses. Great wrestling names. Eh, maybe not The Lemon. Beric hates his nickname, but the ghost says only that the stink of death is fresh on him. Which, who knows how Lem the Lemon doesn't get it by now. Like, Could she make it any more obvious <laughs> that Barric is a corpse? The ghost asks for wine to help numb her joint pain from the storm. Barrack offers silver stags for her news and her dreams, but money's no good to her these days. She'll take wine, and a nice sloppy makeout session with Lem the Lemon. Sadly, Lem the Lemon declines her generous offer, and she settles for hearing her favorite song from Tom. The ghost drinks her wine, saying it's as sour as her news. The king is dead. Lem the Lemon asks if she has any idea how little that narrows it down, so she gets more specific. It's the Kraken King, a.k.a. Balin Greyjoy. Remember him? Eh, I would understand if he didn't. In his wake, the woman says the other squids are infighting. Oh, and Hoster Tully's dead too, although that's old news by now. She also saw a vision of a feverish goat sitting in the Hall of Kings as a huge dog descends on him. Arya knows the dog has to be one of the Cleganes. Apparently it's been too long since Arya hung out with the Bloody Mummers to realize that the goat is Vargo Hoat. Then again, can it ever be too long since you hung out with the Bloody Mummers? They're not exactly good company. I dreamt a wolf howling in the rain, but no one heard his grief, the dwarf woman was saying. I dreamt such a clangor I thought my head might burst. Drums and horns and pipes and screams. But the saddest sound was the little bells. I dreamt of a maid at a feast with purple serpents in her hair, venom dripping from their fangs. And later I dreamt that maid again, slaying a savage giant in a castle built of snow. She turned her head sharply and smiled through the gloom, right at Arya. You cannot hide from me, child. Come closer now. Cold fingers walked down Arya's neck. Fear cuts deeper than swords, she reminded herself. She stood and approached the fire warily, light on the balls of her feet, poised to flee. The dwarf woman studied her with dim red eyes. I see you, she whispered. I see you, wolf child. Blood child. I thought it was the lord who smelled of death. She began to sob, her little body shaking. You are cruel to come to my hill. Cruel. I gorged on grief at Summerhall. I need none of yours. Be gone from here, Darkheart. heart. Be gone. Arya is more than a little freaked out herself. Thoros insists that Arya is harmless, but Lem the Lemon thinks his broken nose says otherwise. Regardless, Beric says they'll be leaving tomorrow to take Arya to Riverrun, where Catelyn awaits them. Oh, no she doesn't, says the ghost. The Blackfish holds Riverrun now. If they want Catelyn, they'll find her at the Twins, for there's to be a wedding. Sorry, I gotta say that in a cackling old woman voice where it doesn't work the same. There's to be a wedding! Look in your fires, Pink Priest, and you will see. Not now, though. Not here. You'll see nothing here. This place belongs to the old gods still. They linger here as I do shrunken and feeble but not yet dead. Nor do they love the flames. For the oak recalls the acorn, the acorn dreams the oak, the stump lives in them both, and they remember when the first men came with fire in their fists. She drank the last of the wine in four long swallows, flung the skin aside, and pointed her stick at Lord Berwick. I'll have my payment now. I'll have the song you promised me. And so Lem woke Tom Sevenstrings beneath his furs and brought him yawning to the fireside with his wood harp in hand. "'Same song as before?' he asked. "'Oh, aye. My Jenny's song. Is there another?' And so he sang. And the dwarf woman closed her eyes and rocked slowly back and forth, murmuring the words and crying. Thoros took Arya firmly by the hand and drew her aside. "'Let her save her song in peace,' he said. "'It's all she has left.' I'm just imagining the ghost of High Heart watching A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms over, and over, and over again. Arya asks Thoros what the ghost meant about Catelyn going to the twins. Thoros honestly has no clue, but he has faith Beric will find her. Oh, he will. Just not like how you think. Anyway, the storm breaks soon after, and the ghost of High Heart vanishes like, well, a ghost. It rains all night, and some of the Brotherhood start to come down with colds. Notch, a Brotherhood member who grew up around here tells Beric that there is an abandoned village not too far away where they can shelter from the storm. As they ride, the rain just keeps coming, and Ned, the one who still has his head, starts to moan about his hair getting wet. Gendry helpfully tells him to hack his hair off with his knife, and Arya realizes the boys aren't getting along. She, however, is fine with Ned. He's timid, sure, but his heart's in the right place, which is more than you can say for most folks in Westeros these days. To distract him from the rain, she asks how long he's been Beric's squire, and also if he's killed anybody yet. Equally normal questions. Turns out Ned became Beric's page because Beric was engaged to Ned's aunt. Ned hasn't done anything more violent than win a prize riding at rings. Arya's younger but is well ahead of Ned at killing. If ahead is really what you want to call that. Ned was at the Battle of the Mummers Ford the first time Beric died. He dragged the lightning lord out of the river and stood over him with a sword, but he never had to use it. Arya thinks back on everyone she's killed, directly and indirectly, and suddenly feels sad about it all. She mentions that her dad was also nicknamed Ned. Hmm, what a coincidence. Young Ned says he saw dead Ned before he died, at the Hans tourney where Loris Terrell gave Sansa a rose. Very smooth retcon there, George. Arya recalls that was also the tourney where Jane Poole developed a crush on Lord Berwick. Ned repeats that Barrick is engaged to his aunt, but then again, that was before the whole return from the dead thing. So, maybe Beric's single again? Nah, doesn't matter. Jane's about to be engaged herself, though not by choice. Then Ned asks Arya about Jon Snow. Arya misses Jon so much that it takes her a minute to wonder how in seven hells Ned even knows about Jon. Ned says that he's Jon's milk brother. You see, Ned had a wet nurse named Wyla, who Ned claims is Jon's mother. Whew, glad that mystery solved. Only took three books. Jon never knew his mother, not even her name. Arya gave Ned a wary look. You know her, truly. Is he making mock of me? If you lie, I'll punch your face. "'Wyla was my witness,' he repeated solemnly. "'I swear it on the honor of my house.' "'You have a house?' "'That was stupid. He was a squire. Of course he had a house.' "'Who are you?' "'My lady?' Ned looked embarrassed. "'I'm Edric Dane, the... the Lord of Starfall.' "'Behind them,' Gendry groaned. "'Lords and ladies,' he proclaimed in a disgusted tone. Arya plucked a withered crabapple off a passing branch and whipped it at him, bouncing it off his thick bull head. "'Ow,' he said. "'That hurt.' He felt the skin above his eye. What kind of lady throws crab apples at people? The bad kind, said Arya, suddenly contrite. Hard to argue with her there. Arya apologizes to Ned for not knowing that he was, you know, important. She thinks about how she'll have to tell John about his mother next time they speak. Any day now, kid. The only Dane Arya had ever heard of is Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning. Arthur was Ned's uncle, but of course he's gone now as is, supposedly, Ashara Dane, Ned's aunt, who, again supposedly, jumped to her death from atop the Palestone Sword. Arya asks why she would do that, and Ned suddenly looks like he just walked into a trap. He wonders why old dead Ned never mentioned Ashara, given that they met at the Great Tourney at Harrenhal. Arya doesn't see what that has to do with why Ashara jumped. Ned says it was out of heartbreak. Arya knows that Sansa would find that romantic, but she just thinks it's stupid. Not that she's going to tell Ned that. She has some she has some courtesies. So, who broke the Lady Ashara's heart? Ned really doesn't want to tell her, but it was Ned. The other Ned. Arya's dead dad, that guy. Arya refuses to believe that. My dad loved my mom and only my mom. End of story. Case closed. Gendry, who apparently has been listening this whole time, wonders where the hell Jon came from if that's true. Well, kid, it's a long story. How much time you got? when a Stark and a Targaryen love each other very, very much. Birds and bees aside, Arya insists that her dad had honor. Gendry says that's more than his dad ever had, whoever he might be. Gendry never even met him. But he's probably dead. Editor's note, definitely dead. And so was Arya's father. Who cares who they fucked? Arya does, though she can't explain why. She rides off to talk to Angai instead, asking him if the Dornish are known to lie. Well, they are, says Angai, in the marcher territory he's from, but then again, the Dornish probably say the same thing about them. Anyway, Ned's a good lad. But Arya calls him a stupid liar and rides off the trail then and there. Harwin catches her, just like he did last time she ran off. Where do you think you're going, lady? You shouldn't run off. There are wolves in these woods, and worse things. I'm not afraid, she said. That boy Ned said, aye, he told me. Lady Ashara It's an old tale, that one. Heard it once at Winterfell when I was no older than you are now. He took hold of her bridle firmly and turned her horse around. Doubt there's any truth to it. But if there is, what of it? When Ned met this Dornish lady, his brother Brandon was still alive. Was him betrothed to Lady Catelyn, so there's no stain on your father's honour. There's not like a tourney to make the blood run hot. So, maybe some words were whispered in a tent of a knight? Who can say? Words or kisses, maybe more, but where's the harm in that? Spring had come, or so they thought, and neither one of them was pledged. She killed herself, though, said Arya uncertainly. Ned says she jumped from a tower into the sea. So she did, Harwin admitted as he led her back, but that was for grief I'd wager. She'd lost a brother, the sword of the morning. He shook his head. Let it lie, my lady. They're dead, all of them. Let it lie. And please, when we come to Riverrun, say naught of this to your mother. Believe me, Harwin, Catelyn is about to have a lot more to worry about than her dead husband's ex-girlfriend. Finally, they arrive at the abandoned village. Eh, abandoned isn't really the right word. Destroyed would be closer to the mark. Arya asks Angi if it was the Lannisters who wiped out the people here. But he points out that these ruins are years old. Local boy Notch says it was Hoster Tully. Lord Goodbrook, who runs these parts, fought for the Mad King during Robert's Rebellion. And so the Tullys came down on his people hard. After the war, the new Lord Goodbrook the knee, bent the knee, but the dead stayed dead. Gendry stares at Arya for a second before turning away. Hoster was her grandfather, after all. Thoros calls for a fire, staring deep into the flames while Tom does what he does best besides sing. Complain. I must be mad to be going back to River Run. tully's never been lucky for old Tom. Was well, that Lysa sent me up the high road, when the moon men took my gold and my horse and all my clothes as well. There's knights in the Vale still telling how I came walking up to the bloody gate with only my heart to keep me modest. They made me sing the name day Boy and the King Without Courage before they opened that gate. My only solace was that three of them died laughing. I haven't been back to the Eerie since, and I won't sing the King Without Courage either. Not for all the gold and casterly Lannisters, Thoros said, roaring red and gold. Whew, finally someone interrupted Tom. Wait, was that about Lannisters? Thoros goes off to confer secretly with Barak, Lem, and Tom. Finally, Beric summons Arya so Thoros can tell her the bad news. He saw Riverrun in the Flames, once again being put under siege by the Lannisters. Okay, so by Visions in the Flames, what Thoros really means is he got an advance copy of A Feast for Crows. Good for him. Arya, sweet summer child that she somehow still is, insists that Rob will beat the Lannisters like he did before. But Thoros says that the young wolf might not be at Riverrun anymore. The Ghost of High Heart called it. Rob and Catelyn are headed to the Twins, leaving the Blackfish in charge of the Riverlands. Beric asks if Brynden Blackfish would know Arya by sight, but sadly the answer is no. Tom says the Blackfish will never pay to get Arya back without knowing for sure whether or not it's her. (sighs) What? No one would ever disguise someone else's Arya? (laughs) Crazy idea. Lem the Lemon wants to risk it anyway. Let's get some quick cash and stop dragging Arya all over the countryside. But Tom points out that that would bring them awfully close to that Lannister army, which will soon be besieging Riverrun. And Beric says he doesn't mean to be taken. Alive. Though he doesn't say that last word. He doesn't need to. Barak says he doesn't want to make any moves until he knows more about where both Stark and Lannister armies are headed. Sounds sensible enough, but when Arya hears him talk about retracing their steps to Acorn Hall, she loses what little is left of her patience and runs for it again. This time she gets farther, thinking about how she would have been better off alone this whole time. Then maybe she would have been reunited with her pack by now. All Beric ever did was lie. Somewhere off to her left, a horse whinnied. Arya couldn't have gone more than fifty yards from the stables, yet already she was soaked to the bone. She ducked around the corner of one of the tumble-down houses, hoping the mossy walls would keep the rain off, and almost bowled right into one of the sentries. A mailed hand closed hard around her arm. "'You're hurting me,' she said, twisting in his grasp. "'Let go! I was going to go back, I—' "'Back!' Sandor Clegane's laughter was iron-scraping over stone. "'Bugger that, wolf-girl. You're mine.' He needed only one hand to yank her off her feet and drag her kicking toward his waiting horse. The cold rain lashed them both and washed away her shouts, and all that Arya could think of was the question he had asked her. Do you know what dogs do to wolves? And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Arya 8. What did you think of
1: this one, Manu? I'm just going to be honest. I don't really know what dogs do to wolves. (laughs) I'm not a biologist, but aren't wolves just bigger, fiercer dogs? I
0: I guess he's talking about hunting would be my guess like you have like a pack of hunting dogs chasing one wolf. But here's the thing, Sandor, there's only one of you. Then again, Arya is tiny.
1: So you're, you're probably gonna win this one big guy. Good for you, I guess. (laughs) Oh, well, anyway, there's no denying this chapter is not as memorable as the previous two Arya chapters, though I think that speaks to the strength of those and less to any failure of this one. It's a dense chapter still, retreading some old ground, very literally, while unveiling <laughs> lots of new information. Some of that is literally news. The ghost of Highheart might as well be Wolf Blitzer as she runs down the breaking headlines of the day. A dead crowned kraken, a dead fish in the river, a soon-to-be-dead goat in Heron Hall. But the diminutive lady of Highheart is not the only ghost conjured here. Ned Stark once again comes front and center thanks to Ned Dane, and some scintillating rumors about Jon Snow's parentage take root here as well. It's a fun chapter where the mystical and the political intersect and inform the next moves for Arya and the Brotherhood.
0: Yeah, like I said up top, this feels like a greatest hits chapter for Arya's time with with the Brotherhood without banners. There's no standalone scene as memorable as Beric fighting Sandor or monologuing about his memory fading, but George is doing everything he does well. From the prophecies of the Ghost of Highheart, to the jokey banter among the Brotherhood, to the backstory exposition involving the Danes. He's getting everything done here that he didn't have room for amidst the more iconic moments in the last couple Arya chapters. And these Arya chapters are coming fast and furious, it feels like we're checking in with her every other episode. So maybe the highest compliment I can pay this chapter is that it still doesn't feel like too much. I'm not bored. If anything, I'm left wanting more of Beric and the Boys.
1: The Hill of Highheart reminds me a lot of Weathertop from Lord of the Rings, an ancient vantage point once held by a civilization long receded into history, be it the Dúnedain of Arnor or the Children of the Forest. Where Weathertop is crowned by a ring of broken stonework, High Heart is circled by broken weirwoods. The Brotherhood's approach to the hill reminds me a lot of Aragorn leading the Hobbits to it in the film, and even the pale figure that is the ghost of High Heart feels like the anti Nazgul when she descends on our little band. From high atop the hill, Arya notices a giant squall to the north, the very same storm that backdrop Bran three and Jon V. Of course, the great storm to the north is a bit of symbolism, foreshadowing, and sympathetic nature leading into the Red Wedding, a massive disaster that levels the northern cause of independence, and of course, feeds into the very title of this book, A Storm of Swords. Even the wind howls like wolves, as Arya observes, just as grey wind will howl into his demise. George is very effective at using natural phenomena like storms to bind story threads together, like, say, the Red Comet in A Clash of Kings, the storm we're talking about here, or the great snows that descend upon the North in A Dance with Dragons.
0: High Heart is above the rain, Arya thinks. Elsewhere in the Riverlands, Catelyn is not so lucky. Her next couple chapters are soaked in rain, right before being soaked in blood instead. For Catalan, that rain embodies her sorrow and grief like the gods are weeping for her and her family. It evokes the rains of Castamere, even before that song literally starts playing at the Red Wedding. Here, that imagery is more ambiguous. On one hand, High Heart is nice and dry up top, dry like a pair of eyes, free of tears. So maybe the idea is that if you keep your heart high, keep your head held up, you can rise above your grief. One day, the tears won't come, the rain won't come. On the other hand, as Arya also thinks, they're not above the wind, tugging at her like invisible hands, like ghosts. Highheart is haunted, she thinks. And just like Arya's time in the supposedly haunted house of Harrenhal, you can read that in multiple ways. It might be literally true. The hill's covered with weirwood stumps, and the ghost of Highheart says, even the stumps remember. And she's right, judging from what Jamie dreams while sleeping on a weirwood stump in the very next chapter. But the ghost herself isn't a literal ghost, any more than John's wolf. And the deeper meaning of that haunting is metaphorical. What haunts you is memory, your memories of those you have lost. And there's no getting away from those ghosts, not unless you die and come back like Beric. It doesn't matter how high a hill you climb. The wind will find you, like the winds of winter, and winter
1: is always, always coming. Thorough stares into the flames, but comes up empty on visions. Not here, not now, which the Ghost of High Heart will credit to the old gods still having power here. I hate to go heavy on Lord of the Rings from the get-go. Okay, no, I'm not, I'm not sorry, but it does remind me of the fellowship gallivanting through Ariador after Rivendell. As they crossed the Great Plains where once elvish communities lived, tra- traces of them were left in the earth and in the trees. The children of the forest seem to have a similar lingering presence here. I want to posit another comparison, though. One, two, the Matrix Reloaded. When Neo meets the Oracle in that movie, he talks about how he doesn't see the ending to his visions, specifically the vision where Trinity is falling. The Oracle informs him that he can't see past the choice he doesn't understand. The upcoming Red Wedding, or perhaps the Red Wedding and Purple Wedding in concert, is a hinge of the narrative, in the same way the Wall is the hinge of the world. It's a cataclysmic, cosmic confluence of terror and wonder that will upend the entire war being waged in Westeros. At a certain point, no mortal man like Thoros Amir is able to truly see past an event like that. Or perhaps from a meta-narrative point of view, George can't let the audience see past those ground-shaking events. Yeah, the ghost will give us prophecies of happenings that come after the Red Wedding, but she's more akin to the Oracle in this analogy. Aria 8 gets to be a showcase for Thoros' character in much the same way Aria 7 was heavily spotlighting Barak. Gendry actually knows Thoros, or at least knew of him, th- through his master, Tobo Mat, who called Thoros a sot and a fraud. Thoros does the Marge Simpson thing of, it's true, but he sh- shouldn't say it. <laughs> Thoros admits to being a bad priest, a fate that wasn't his own choosing. As the youngest of the litter, he was given to the Church of Rolor but spent as much time dedicated to food and sex as he did piety. These women were in my bed where I got here, I swear, honest. <laughs> Which makes it unclear when he means that he has a gift for tongues, whether he means as a linguist or a lover. I'm going to go with both. One little tidbit I often forget is Thoros saying he had seen things in the fire before. Just broadly speaking, I think a lot of us collectively view the birth of dragons as reanimating magic in this world, even if some of the White Walker stuff came before. Thoros' powers themselves seem greatly augmented now, which seems to flow from that same logic. But Thoros hints here that the power of R'hllor, or at least what is credited to R'hllor, was always there smoldering within him, burning slowly, waiting to be fully rekindled. Thoros was assigned to Westeros, though it very much seemed to be a case of the Red Priests wanting to rid themselves of this no-goodnik. Eris seemed to be a receptacle for the teachings of the Lord of Light, but the Pyromancers were able to more instantly satiate the Mad King's pyrotechnic thirsts. Robert himself viewed Thoros more as a drinking buddy and a clown, especially enjoying whenever his clowning got the best of Kevin Lannister. Thoros smiles in contrition, though. Fire is no way to treat the blade, and Barric Dondarrion pops in at just this moment to say fire consumes and leaves nothing in its wake. Barric is the burning sword here. You can breathe fire into it and it makes an awesome display of violence, but it wears down the sword, just like it's wearing down the lightning lord. It really does feel like Beric wants to give up the game here. Basically popping in to say that we've done this song and dance too often. I need to be left in peace next time. Everyone on the internet who's ever uttered the phrase, I want to die, feels some real solidarity with Barric in this
0: moment. <laughs> I think he's earned it maybe more than any of us have, truly. And we've been to High Heart before, so this scene might seem redundant. Arya has the most chapters of anyone in Storm of Swords. Maybe too many. This this could have been cut. This could have been combined. But something has changed. Last time, they didn't have Beric or Thoros with them, and their presence makes this a very different chapter. It's easy to forget that Thoros has been transformed along with Beric, not as radically or as literally, but the Red Priest is also not the man he used to be, in a Star Wars, you know, from a certain point of view, Anakin is not Darth Vader kind of way. Gendry is skeptical of Thoros' abilities, despite having just joined the Brotherhood. It's a holdover from his old life in King's Landing, where Thoros was basically a joke. And I love how Thoros doesn't take that personally at all. When Gendry says that Thoros was a grifter, Thoros agrees. Yeah, I was. Emphasis on was. There can be no redemption without corruption, after all. And in his past life, Thoros embodied cheerful corruption. And why not, when the world around him was equally corrupt? Gendry's old master Topo Ma might have been right about Thoros wasting the steel, But as Thoros says, tab was also massively overcharging him for said steel. Thoros had no respect for the Red Temple. And why should he, when he didn't choose that life? His own family saw him as a useless mouth to feed. So he fed himself, gorged himself on food and sex like the ghost of Highheart says she gorged on grief. The actual faith was no more than a performance. Spells and prayers he memorized because they forced him to. And when they actually gave him a job, it was to seduce the Mad King. Not literally, thankfully. The timeline is a little unclear here. Had Eris already started burning people alive, or was he just known to be fond of fire in the way some Targaryens are? If it was the former, then what an ironically cold blooded move by the Red Priests to look at a pyromancer king and think, yeah, that's our guy. If it was the latter, then Thoros quickly found himself outmatched. As he put it, the pyromancers knew better tricks. The only thing Thoros ever set on fire was cheap steel. So his cynicism was only further entrenched. He also seems to have been affected by uh, the death of Rhaegar's children. He brings that up to Sandor, having been there, seen the bodies. That probably also made him give up hope in any institution, anything to believe in around him. Even as Thoros is glad to have actually found his faith these days, he's nostalgic for his wayward youth. Who knows how those girls got into my bed? Must have been the will of relore. He works in mysterious ways. <laughs> and that's true of a lot of religious people I know, a lot of people who converted to religion a little later in life especially. They're fond of their younger selves in the way you would be of a mischievous kid, or even a pet. Along the same lines, Thoros looks back at his time in Robert's court with a smile. Coming back to this, I feel like Thoros embodies Robert's reign. Robert was casually generous, as Tyrion will later think to himself. He gave Thoros room and board because, well, why not, it seems like. He's fun to drink with, he makes me laugh. Yeah, Thoros was basically Robert's clown, his court jester. Moonboy must have been pissed off at the competition. (laughs) But both Robert and Thoros were marking time, drinking their days away so they wouldn't have to face the fact that they were wasting their lives. It's so revealing that Robert loved the sight of Thoros' fiery sword toppling Kevon Lannister from his horse. Robert hated his in-laws, but he never did anything about them, just like he never did anything about Varys or Littlefinger. That might require him to stop drinking, get off his ass, and make a decision. So instead, he contented himself with seeing Kevon humiliated in a fake fight by a fake priest. Similarly, Thoros wasn't doing the Lord's work as he now thinks about it. He was content to fake it. Now he's doing it for real, as Robert never did. That, however, has negative consequences, as well as positive ones. Thoros may feel better about himself. As he said in the cave, I am less than I was, but more. But Beric doesn't. It seems to really piss him off hearing Thoros and Gendry talk about how the priest treated swords badly. Oh, the steel is what you regret? (laughs) Not me? Fire consumes, Beric says, and when it's done, there is nothing left. Those, those great poetic chivalric lines we get from Beric and his few appearances. Maester Raymond says the same thing to Sam in A Feast for Crows. Ice preserves, but fire consumes. So I was fine as long as I stayed at the Wall. But every mile we sail south, I melt, basically. I burn from within. Again, this is metaphorical as well as literal. Fire here stands in for passion, the fiery heart with its capacity for both love and hate. That's what makes us human. That's our reason to live, really, to experience those emotions. But fires burn out. Feelings fade. And what are we left with then? Nothing, says Barrack. Just the void where his memories used to be. The children of fire are ash and dust. It's really sad. Because the only reason Beric is still technically alive at all is because Thoros loves him, didn't want him to die, like he says in the show. I said the words because he was my friend, and they were the only words I knew. And sweet friend, he says to Beric here, that's the passion, the fire. But Beric can't really return that love, not anymore. And he's starting to resent Thoros for dragging him back, again and again, to this veil of tears. And he says it's nothing he hasn't said before. And I think that's George's great skill with secondary characters like this, giving you a strong sense that their story was going on before we met them and might keep going when we move on. It's like when we were introduced to Jojen and Mira, and Mira says that Jojen's visions come true sometimes. And he says, there is no sometimes, Mira. And George just writes that they look at each other, and he looks sad, and she looks defiant. And you go, oh, you've been having this argument for years. Same thing here. Beric and Thoros have been stuck in this loop, having the same argument over and over, like how we've come back full circle to High Heart. The only thing that changes is that Beric loses himself. Six times, he says, that's too many. Beric wants to die, for real, because death at this point would be a rest, an escape from a world in which he doesn't have that human heart anymore. So instead, he gives his fire to Stoneheart, who feels only hatred. She was consumed by loss, and has returned to pay it back with interest. So maybe Thoros should have just let Beric go earlier than that, But he couldn't bring himself to, any more than Catalin could let go of everyone she loved
1: and lost. The coherence of Old God's imagery comes to the fore when the Ghost of High Heart appears, red eyes on white, like John's Wolf Ghost, like the Heart Trees, like Blood Raven. Even her diminutive height gives her a physicality akin to the Werewood stumps ordaining the hill. And while this isn't exclusive to the Old God's milieu, the way the Ghost refers to everyone by their sigils and symbols, The Ember and the Lemon and the Lord of Corpses reminds me a lot of how Mira Reed delivered the story of the Night of the Laughing Tree. But despite not liking his Lord of Corpses moniker, Beric Dondarrion is once again a paragon of religious toleration, and even religious cooperation, as this band of Rolor faithful happily exchange with an avatar of the Old Gods. We saw the Brotherhood be tolerant of the Brown Brothers last time with Arya, so old gods are new, Beric is able to forge some common ground, or at least share some literal ground. Similarities abound between the Ghost of High Heart and the Lord of Corpses, both symbols of the religions they follow, and both barely holding on to their humanity. There's a similar emotional undercurrent running under both characters, trying to grasp for things that make them human, or thereabouts. She asks for wine and a sloppy kiss and eventually a song. A Dionysian request to reconnect her to a life long since past. It's of a piece with Beric wondering about his castle, his betrothed, his mother. Anything that reminds them of a life before this, a life that perhaps contains smiles and laughter and music and love. Lem's response stands out, not because he's rejecting a free makeout session, but the words (laughs) he uses immediately makes me think of the Red Wedding too old for wines and kisses. All you'll get from me is the flat of my sword. And as the wine drips down her chin, it's immediately evocative of blood, which will be flowing red at the twins soon enough. Mm Mm-hmm. And she's got those red eyes, which on Weirwoods,
0: as many characters say, often look like they're weeping blood. Like I said, the difference between this chapter and the last time the Brotherhood were at Highheart is that this time, Beric and Thoros are here. So we get uh, Beric's interactions with the ghost of Highheart. And I like that he speaks to her with this, like this weary courtesy in hilarious contrast to Lem who just keeps grumbling and insulting her. I get the sense Lem just doesn't have the patience for all these mysteries and double talk. Whereas for Beric, and this is lingua franca, this this is what he has in common with an avatar of the old gods like her. For the ghost though, time is what's taken everything away. Made her too old for wine and kisses. Whereas Beric isn't even that old. He just looks like he is, like he's been through a time compressor and accelerated all the way into old age. It is hard to be so old, the ghost says, and he would agree. And while the ghost is obsessed with those she has lost, especially Jenny of Oldstones, of course, Beric can't even remember those he has lost, and he's primarily losing himself. Next
1: comes the news and prophecies, And like with all prophetic dumps in A Song of Ice and Fire, these have been turned over by readers for multiple decades now, and most of the illusions make themselves plain by the end of Storm, if not Feast Dance. First comes the Wet King's death and the Iron Squids turning on each other, which is clearly the death of Balon Greyjoy and the upcoming King's Moon and Feast. Then comes the explicit mention of Hoster Tully, which stands out amidst all these abstractions. But it makes me think ahead to this chapter when the ruined village is explicitly credited to Hoster Tully. The first set of prophecies is rounded out by the goat in the Hall of Kings awaiting the Great Dog. Again, obviously, Gregor Clegane descending on Vargo Hote at Harrenhal. Arya tries to sniff this one out herself, wondering if it could mean the Hound, but we as re-readers know better. I'm also becoming increasingly fond of Harrenhal being called the Hall of Kings uh, in the year of our Lord 2000 because it was King Harren, the Black's Great Keep, and Harren itself is the king of all castles in terms of size and grandeur, and probably still would be if not for Aegon's Dragon. (laughs) But I feel that turn of phrase gets a little extra oomph now knowing that the very fate of kings were decided in Harrenhal, be it the Great Council of 101 or Roose Bolton carefully hinting at the Red Wedding. More dreams come, a wolf howling in the rain with no one to hear its grief. That last bit very much makes me think of the last lines of the Reigns of Castamere and not a soul to hear. The wolf in question could really be any number of things. It could symbolize Grey Wind or Rob or both. It could symbolize Nymeria or Arya voicing their sadness after the fact, knowing another of their pack is down. The loud noises and pipes and little bells very neatly map onto the music at the twins and the bells of Jingle Bell Frey, whom Catelyn Stark will take with her to the grave. Dancing with the Red Wedding Prophecy is the Purple Wedding Prophecies, the Medusa-like figure with venom dripping from her hair. Pretty clearly Sansa and the amethyst poisons in her hairnet that turned Joffrey to stone, or well, as a corpse that's cold and hard like stone anyways. And I gotta assume the Ghost of High Heart is a podcaster, because at this point she does a deft segue from Sansa Stark to her sister Arya. The Ghost beckons to Arya, realizing it might be her, not Beric, that brings the stench of death. I see you, wolf girl, blood child. Death, of course, surrounds Arya Stark, both as an observer and a participant, and she'll be in service to more death at the House of Black and White and beyond, perhaps with Lady Stoneheart or a Red Wedding 2.0. It really feels like this is the loose basis for Melisandra's words to Arya in S3, yep, which yep. ended up being more about eye, co- eye color more or less. The Ghost of High Heart also mentions Summerhall here, which has also become a bit of a runner in our last several episodes. First with Robert's great victories in Davos 4, and just previously in Daenerys 4 when Barristan tells Danny about Rhaegar's emo boy vibes. It's oft remarked that Arya Stark bears a resemblance to Lyanna, which I wonder if that plays into the Ghost of High Heart telling Arya to be gone. That Arya's visage triggers some memory or dream or vision of Lyanna, given her long history with House Targaryen. Ooh, I love that. And
0: yeah, we're, we'll get to uh, the Ghost of High Heart's last vision towards the end of this episode. But yeah, I love, I love that connection. Among all the different generations uh, she has seen, just like Maester Aemon, you really get the sense that all these these losses, all these different grievances, are tied together. You got you got Summerhall, the disaster at Summerhall, where uh, where Jenny Oldstones died, along with her husband uh, Duncan, the Prince of Dragonflies. People have theorized that uh, the, the the woods witch who supposedly told the II, that the prince that was promised would come of his line, that that woods witch might have been the ghost of Highheart, so she feels kind of responsible for all that. So you've got all that disaster, but that was like eh, a little under 40 years ago. And then you got Lyanna's death and all the, the pain and loss and bullshit of the Roberts' Rebellion era, that was a little under 20 years ago. And now you got everything Arya's been through. It's, it's generational. The pain is what ties us together, back and forward in time, like the blood that Bran tastes in his Weirwood visions in A Dance with Dragons. You carry that pain with you. It becomes a part of you. Hence Arya as blood child. And I love how George plays with our expectations in this scene. Like the ghost suddenly sees Arya and calls her forward. It's, it's spooky. We're creeped out by that just like Arya is. We're probably wondering if she's going to make some prophecy about Arya or drink a drop of her blood like with Cersei and Maggie in A Feast for Crows. It's the kind of thing you expect, a scene with a spooky looking witch. But instead, it's the opposite. Arya is the one who scares her. The poor kid's anger and pain is so palpable that it basically gives the ghost a nervous breakdown. Again, while Beric smells of death, it's only his own. And while he suffers for it, that feeling maybe isn't quite the same as grief. Arya's fresh grief stinks up the joint, makes it impossible for the ghost to smell anything else. The ghost even says she was cruel to come. Now on one hand, that seems unfair. It's not Arya's fault she lost so many people. One of the ways we handle grief is by sharing it with each other. Even when we lose someone we love, we're not alone in that. Someone else is suffering too, and that can be a solace. But the flip side of that is that someone else's grief might just compound your own. The ghost has no room in her heart for anyone else's misery. It's more than that, though. The ghost is afraid of Arya, calling her Darkheart. And I love how the Brotherhood respond to that. Thoros says there's no harm in Arya, she's just a little kid. But Lem touches his broken nose and says, "Eh, he's not so sure. Later in the chapter, Arya thinks about everyone she's killed and gets really sad. I think the implication there is that she's wondering if the ghost is right. Maybe I do have a dark heart. Now, I don't think so, because if she did have a dark heart, she wouldn't be sad. She killed first out of self-defense. And she broke Lem's nose because she wanted to get free, find her family. She still does. But it's hard to shake this moment, when the ghost looks into Arya's soul and sees death looking back, as if Arya has been mired in violence so long. Again, she's become part of it, and it's become part of her. After all, she's about to get snatched up by Sandor, another younger
1: sibling who developed a dark heart to reflect a dark world. We get to the part where the ghost talks about how the hill belongs to the old gods, and Thoros will have to confirm Catelyn Stark's GPS location elsewhere. (laughs) The old gods' presence, their power still lingers here, weak though it may be. It's also evocative of the end of A Clash of Kings, where Bran himself observes Winterfell's strength remains, he's not dead yet either, just broken. Here in this middle stretch of A Storm of Swords, we are starting to feel that latent old gods experience just underneath the surface. It's not felling kings or kingdoms, but they are nudging the story forward. Bran's emerging third eye, saving Jon at Queen's, Queen's crown with a warg attack. Jamie dreaming of Brienne on a weirwood stump, dreams that spur him to save her in our next chapter. hand soon, too, will come and get Sam safely to the wall. It's not quite a time for wolves yet, but the power of the old god seems to be marshalling itself one last time. Going back to the Tolkien well, the way the Ghost of High Heart speaks to Oak recalling Acorn, Acorn dreaming of oaks, and the Old Gods remembering the First Men coming with fire in their hands is very evocative of Treebeard and the Two Towers. But that idea of memory in the roots of the world is now evocative of a line from Andor, Season 1, Episode 5. In it, an outlaw named Skeen tells the titular Cassian Andor that, "...the axe forgets, but the tree remembers." In both cases, the tie that binds is conquest and genocide.
0: More than any of the other deities in the story, the old gods are continually tied to memory. Which makes sense. They are the old gods. They have so much to remember. (laughs) Then again, the way the ghost puts it, you start to feel like this isn't about linear time at all, but a circle. Not only does the oak remember the acorn, but the acorn dreams the oak. It can see the future just like her. So it's not only that the trees remember the First Men coming over the horizon with fire in their fists, it's that they connect that time to when the Andals did the same thing, and now the followers of R'hllor and maybe Daenerys next. Just like how every generation experiences grief, from Jenny's time through Lyanna's to Arya, every new wave of emigration over from Essos further alienates the old gods and their followers by burning and chopping down weirwoods. So Barak might be okay with the old gods, but they are not okay with him because they've seen him before. Or rather, they've seen his archetype. If the show's presentation is true, or even close to true, the White Walkers only exist because the children of the forest hated and feared men with their fire, probably the Andals breaking the pact the First Men made with the children. And again, that seems unfair. Like, those were totally different groups of men that came to Westeros thousands of years apart. The Andals never made a pact like the First Men and the First Men had no way of enforcing their pact on the Andals, they were pretty busy getting killed by the Andals. Yet they both suffered from the Long Night, and they would if it came again. It's kind of the same problem Danny has, referring to all of Robert's vassals as the usurper's dogs, Mm -hmm. as though Ned Stark and Tywin Lannister are equally bad. Or you could compare it to the Brotherhood trying to hold Sandor responsible for his brother's crimes, even though he's one of his brother's victims. These patterns of war and emigration create alienation at a broad level, and you can really only break them down by looking at people as individuals. Otherwise, we all wind up paying for the crimes of our ancestors,
1: dancing on their strings, as Tyrion puts it, with no agency of our own. The Crone finally gets her song in the end, Jenny's song, which may be D.B. Weiss's greatest work on the Throne show in Season 8, Episode 2, A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Sadly, we do not have Daniel Portman or Florence Welch or even a Wolfman Zack to sing it for you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The first few lyrics drop in the epilogue of this book, and then the aforementioned wise built it out for the show. And very appropriate that the ghost of High Heart is haunted by grief in the same scene
0: where she predicts the Red Wedding. What songs will Arya pay to hear when she's old and alone? You know, when she makes it over the western horizon to whatever this world equivalent of America is, and she's sitting in a pub, you know, and she sees a, a young bard in the corner playing a lute. What is she going to request, huh? Maybe the Reigns of Castamere. It'll make her feel bad, but it'll also make her remember.
1: We all love sad songs, don't we? Mm-hmm. The autumn storms roll in during the night and into the morning. Weather systems will feel elsewhere as Rob and Kat begin their soggy walk to the twins. Here's a fun bit of show trivia for you. Autumn Storms was the initial title of Game of Thrones Season 3, Episode 7, written by George Martin, but eventually scenes would be shifted around, and eventually that episode was titled The Bear and the Maiden Fair. Uh-huh. Nothing to do with this chapter, but there it is. I talked earlier about the Great Storm to the North as symbolism for the brewing chaos with the Red Wedding and its fallout, but the rains haranguing Arya now also have a similar symbolic value, perhaps the literal rains of Castamere, storm systems emerging from the West. Many in the band complain about chills and shivers, which I find a neat little trick. This is a very common way to write interactions with ghosts, people feeling those goose pimples and hair standing on the back of their neck. Ostensibly caused by rain here, but it's also what you'd expect after encountering the ghost of high heart. On the road, we get our first good look at Ned Dane as he rides with Arya and Gendry to the nearby village ruins. Gendry seems to have some contempt for the lad before even finding out he's highborn, and perhaps that's some jealousy at Arya's interest in the boy. The curse of the rereader works in funny ways. The minute Ned showed up in previous chapters, it was like, well, here's Ned Dane. He's a fucking Dane. Dane, 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 (laughs) as I do my best Chloe impression. I forget that this chapter builds to that reveal, Mm -hmm. starting with the talk of Ned's bluish eyes looking vaguely purplish, his ashy silver hair, and that he's a stony Dornishman. Arya's tomboyishness gets a cute little shout here, saying Edric could take her with lances, but she could totally beat him with a sword. Just a little dick measuring contest between the boys. It's cute. Trying to do my best Maisie Williams. I'm a girl. When she asks him if he ever killed anyone, Edric just replies, "Uh, I'm 12. It's a stark reminder that while the country has been at war for much of our story and the lawlessness, cruelty reigns supreme, it still isn't common to have the experiences that Arya has had. She is the albatross, unique in this way, and perhaps a reason why she's always bickering with the other youths around her. Though, to be fair, she's also always bickering with the olds as well. As she talks to Ned, she pauses to think about the people she's killed, or helped kill, and whether the latter is just as bad as the former.
0: Obviously everyone compares, uh... Edric Dane's name, his nickname Ned, that's what people jump on first, the connection to, to Ned Stark. But thinking of his given name, Edric, we have another Edric we met not that long ago in Storm of Swords, Edric Storm. And it's funny how different Edric Dane is from Edric Storm, despite the, the first name in common. Edric Storm is arrogant, always reminding everyone that he's a king's son. Like when we first meet him, he draws himself up and says, I'm Edric Storm, King Robert's son. And Davos just goes, of course you are. <laughs> like, I can see your face, kid. <laughs> Edric Dane doesn't even reveal that he's highborn at first and seems kind of embarrassed to call himself the Lord of Starfall. You get the sense he doesn't really feel that way. Edric Storm is proud of his father's martial legend. Robert, muscled like a maiden's fantasy, winning all those battles with his big-ass hammer. Edric Dane is not proud of having actually fought in battles. He wishes he was still riding at rings. For Edric Storm, war is only a story. For Edric Dane, it's become his life. And much as Gendry dislikes Edric Dane, I think he'd probably find his half-brother Edric Storm unbearable. Arya's caught in between. She likes Edric, but it, it feels like they come from totally different worlds. And I love the detail that he's shocked when she asks him if he's ever killed anyone. Like, in his case, it's not an unreasonable question. He has been in battle. We just saw him in battle in the previous Arya chapter. But he's shocked because he's only 12, he says. Killing is for adults. There's like a, there's like a line you cross and then it, it makes sense for you to have killed someone. And he still hasn't realized what a luxury that is. For all that he has more on-the-ground experience than Edric Storm, he's naive in his own way. In the same way that Sansa both pities and envies the Tyrell cousins who still think of life as a song, Arya's not sure whether to pity or envy Edric. On one hand, she boasts that she could best him with a sword, and that's young, spunky Arya always trying to show she belongs, (laughs) again, a lot like Lyanna. On the other hand, is the world of violence and war really one in which she wants to belong? She starts listing in her head everyone she's killed, or been indirectly responsible for killing. It's like her list of everyone she wants to kill, only that list makes her feel good, like she's going to be able to right some wrongs, avenge her loved ones, take charge of her life again. But the list of people she's already killed? That makes her sad, because it runs in the opposite direction emotionally. She doesn't feel like she's actually avenged anyone, and she's still not in charge of her life. So what was it for? Maybe Edric is better off being more used to playing at war than he is the
1: real thing. Edric Dane was a page at seven, which is a common age to become one both in Westeros and in real-world medieval Europe. He became a squire at ten, which is not uncommon in Westeros, Barristan and Ag were also very young squires, but is a bit divorced from our own real world, where boys became squires usually around the age of 14. Ned recalls the unhappy memory of the Mummer's Ford, when he dragged Beric's body out of the river and stood guard over him. It creates a visual companion to Nymeria dragging Catelyn Stark's body out of the river after the Red Wedding. Maybe the Arya Nymeria hive mind got the idea from Ned here. Arya then says her dad was also named Ned, to which Edric sadly replies that they are out of Ned license plates in the gift shop. <laughs> I'm so, so sorry. I know these Simpsons references are coming faster and becoming more inscrutable with each episode. We became a Simpsons podcast so gradually I didn't even notice that well. I, I just hope someone gets fired for that blunder. <laughs> we Ned says he wanted to meet Big Ned at the hands tourney, but he didn't have a good icebreaker. They recall Sansa and Sir Loras, and we even get mention of Jane Poole. I wonder why George may be reminding us of the steward's daughter. Hell, even in an Arya chapter. Can't think of a reason. And as Arya thinks, that feels like it was so long ago.
0: When her father was still alive. When all Sansa wanted in the world was a rose from Loras Terrell, When Beric was handsome enough for Jane Poole to crush on him. That was before he, and Edric can't even bring himself to say, died. For the same reason he doesn't want to talk about the battle at the Mummers Ford when Beric first died and came back to life. It's easier to live in the glorious past. And the supposedly glorious past is exactly what Edric is here to
1: talk about. Young Ned asks after Jon Snow. Wait, how does Edric know about Jon? Oh, they were Milk Brothers? Because Ned was nursed by Jon's mom, Wyla? What's that? Jon Snow's mom? (laughs) Okay, we know John's parents are Rhaegar and Lyanna, Uh and this dropped by Ned, so unceremoniously in an Arya chapter is a red herring. We heard about the Ashara Dane parentage rumors back in early Cat, A Game of Thrones chapters, and we also learned that Ned stamped out that gossip real quick. He even relays the name of Wyla to King Robert in Eddard II, hoping to give his bestie a name and hoping they can shut the fuck up about it going forward. But Eddard Stark is Lord of Winterfell, not Lord of Starfall. Hey, I'm just picking up the similarities in those castles. Fall, fell, which is also making me hungry for falafel. I would hang out at Castle Falafel forever. I would never leave. (laughs) If rumors had run wild in Winterfell about Ashara Dane, perhaps being Jon's mother, that rumor would likely spread. Scandalous acts by Lord Paramount surely qualifies for National Enquirer-style reporting in Westeros. Even Cersei repeats the Dane dornish rumors when Ned confronts her in The Reds Keeps Godswood. But most importantly, rumors would definitely swirl in Starfall itself, with Ned Stark coming to the castle at the end of Robert's Rebellion, with Dawn in one hand and a little boy in the other. And I'm sure that rumor mill really got out of hand after Ashara allegedly left from the Stone Sword. Is this wireless story taking hold in Starfall, which Ned Dane repeats as if it's just obvious settled knowledge, a result of gossip running amok, with no Arthur Dane or Ashara Dane to stop it? Or was Wyla an agreed-upon cover story by Ned, Ashara, Howland Reed, and maybe a few others to quell the more scandalous alternatives?
0: Like you say, Ned gives up Wyla's name to Robert, so this appears to have been the lie everyone at the Tower of Joy agreed to tell. But you hit on something interesting there. It's treated as fact at Starfall. So much so that Edric is surprised that John doesn't know about his supposed mother. Whereas at Winterfell, Ned let the gossip run wild. I mean, he stamped out on Ashara, but he didn't replace it with his own official narrative. He just kind of let it linger, the the mystery. He just let it linger. Maybe he didn't want to get caught in a lie, or maybe the subject was just too painful to broach. At Starfall, the only one close enough to all of it to take it personally, I think, was Ashara, and she's no longer around to spill the beans. So it can be treated as settled fact at Starfall because
1: there's nothing at stake for anyone who's still there. Good point. Good point. When Ned swears all this is true on the honor of his house, then the house stain reveal finally comes. I love Gendry groaning at this. They even kind of did this in the show, too, when he and Davos are hanging out in the dungeons of Dragonstone and going over all the ways the lords and ladies of Westeros are all fucking freaks.
0: And then Arya immediately defies that image by whipping a battery at Gendry. Okay, it's a crab <laughs> apple, but you know she wishes it was a battery. You're from Philly, you gotta make that Exactly, joke. exactly. If he's going to make fun of her for being a lady, well, then she'll behave like the total opposite of a sweet, serene, noble lady. Just to teach him. You mentioned Lyanna earlier, and this feels like exactly what Lyanna would do if she was ever talking to both Rhaegar and Robert. After all, Gendry is Robert's bastard, and Endric kind of resembles Rhaegar.
1: House Dane is an itch that George has only begun to scratch, but Ned Dane provides a nice little mosquito bite to pick at. We've been hearing more and more about House Dane in A Storm of Swords, thanks in chief to Arthur's two Kingsguard brothers, Jaime and Barrison, being ascendant characters in this book. Ashara herself was mentioned in the Night of the Laughing Tree story, and mentions of Ashara penetrate way back to the earliest Ned and Cat chapters. But they still feel shrouded in mystery relative to our intimacy with other houses in Westeros, and a house that has had profound effect on the readers A-1, number the Starks of Winterfell. Edric didn't know either Sir Arthur or Ashara, though, both having died before his birth. Arya asks Ned why Ashara threw herself from the Pale Stone Sword, and for the second time in A Storm of Swords, you have a young person wondering why a Stark kid never heard of a story. Given what we know from those early Catlin chapters in A Game of Thrones, Ned stamped out any mention of Ashara Dane right quick, and this would be when John and Rob were still very young. By the time of Arya and Bran, her name would be even less likely to be said within the walls of Winterfell. One thing I love about Arya's point of view is that George never forgets that she is an actual child, and even when forced to be otherwise, that childishness never fully goes away. She might have sounded aged beyond her years when she recalls all those she's fought and killed already, but when Ned presents her with the idea that Ashara and her father may have had a romantic fling, she falls back into the most simplistic concept of love and marriage— My father only loved my mother, and that's the way it's always been, as if they were destined to be together from time immemorium. Even Edric and Harwin later saying that this was before Ned knew Catelyn, that she was still betrothed to Brandon, and that has little effect on Arya. She is only able to conceive of this information as lies. My favorite bit of irony, or let's call it a contradiction, is Arya trying to throw Sansa under the bus, thinking her older sister would swoon with emotion at the idea of suicide over a broken heart, that it's stupid and silly. Yet Arya is having a reaction that's equal in magnitude and naivety, if not in the same way. Gentry counters with the obvious. Ned had a bastard, which Arya also lashes out at, but Gendry actually has praise for her father. He took care of his bastard, unlike Gendry's father, whoever he may be, is probably just some drunken fool. I'm loving this runner of Gendry talking about Robert unknowingly, but accurately, (laughs) it's a very good bit. (laughs) Though it is worth noting that it was probably best for Robert to to not openly involve himself with Gendry in fear of delegitimizing his own regime. Arya's refusal to take in this new information, or at least grapple with it, has her leaving her peers behind to seek refuge first with Angai, and then with Harwin. Harwin grew up in Winterfell and knows the stories about Ashara and Ned well enough. He tells her the heart of it. Ned is allowed to play hide the salami, as a treat. (laughs) It's no big deal. Maybe it didn't happen. It was only a kiss. It was only a kiss, and he was falling asleep, and she was calling a cab. (laughs) The suicide is really sticking with Arya, though. A twist of the knife in the phrasing that she has to say, Ned says she jumped, to reinforce some involvement of her father in it. Harwin points to all the other griefs in Ashara's life that could have caused such an act. Either way, this is all in the past, everyone's dead, and let's move on, and absolutely do not tell your mom. (laughs) Which, sadly, Arya won't have a chance to.
0: Yeah, great points. I love that. That Arya might not believe in chivalric romance like Sansa, or she at least doesn't project herself into those stories in the woman's role the way Sansa does, but she still romanticizes that which she does believe in. And she believed in her father. Ned was Arya's role model, her moral compass, as he was in different ways for all his children. And as you say, no one is actually criticizing Ned here. Edric, Harwin, and even Gendry all have nothing but praise for Daddy Stark. I think what really bothers Arya isn't the idea that Ned did something objectively wrong, but that Ned had a whole life before she or any of the kids showed up. A life that she realizes she really knows very little about. If Ned loved another woman, then his family with Catelyn wasn't destiny. It just happened to happen. Maybe it got in the way of destiny. Maybe the gods wanted him to marry a Chardain. This is silly for multiple reasons, as everyone points out to her. Arya already knew that Cadlin was betrothed to Brandon first, so it already wasn’t destiny. And she also knows, or thinks she knows, that Ned fathered a child with another woman. I get the feeling that Arya never really thought about John's mother very much, because Arya was so close to John, resembled him so strongly that they always felt like full siblings, or they always maybe they always felt like bastards together in her eyes. Now she’s being forced to reckon with this Dornish stranger knowing more about John than she does right after she wistfully thought of joining John at Castle Black. Now she's having to compare Ned to Gendry's father, who he hates. Arya has kept herself going in part by compartmentalizing, by creating a mental wall between her life at war and her life at home. Now she's forced to contemplate Ned's time at war in the South, and John as a product of that war. While both Gendry and Harwin say it doesn't really matter because they're all dead, the truth is that this might have been easier to handle if Arya could just ask Ned about it. Would he have told her the truth? Maybe not. Probably not. But now she'll never know. There are multiple layers of irony here. Like you said, Gendry doesn't know that the deadbeat dad he keeps describing was the king. And Arya doesn't know that Ned really did keep his honor, because Jon isn't his bastard son. But if dad did nothing wrong, what happened to Ashara Dane? That's the question Arya's left with. More disturbing than her father cheating on her mother before they were even betrothed. Was Ned so callous as to drive a woman to suicide? Harwin says it was Arthur's death that led Ashara to jump, but if she did indeed jump, I think it was more likely out of sorrow at losing Ned. And that's something Arya has to face as she grows up. Not only that her parents had experiences she can't understand, but that not everyone survived those experiences. All that persists are the memories. The past is inside the present.
1: The oak is inside the acorn, just as with the ghost of Highheart. They finally arrive at a ruined village, and Arya asks if this was Lannister doings. Angai channels his inner Syrio Pharrell, telling Arya to invoke that true seeing. The moss and lichen hang heavy on these ruins. This place was decimated long ago. And by none other than Arya's grandfather, Hoster Tully, who descended on Lord Goodbrook's fief when he wouldn't declare for Robert during the rebellion. The sins of Hoster Tully once again come to the fore in A Storm of Swords, and it won't be the last time either. This builds perfectly on her conversation with Edric.
0: He made her feel uncomfortable about her father, and now she has to feel uncomfortable about her grandfather. Of course she assumes it was the Lannisters who wiped out the village. They're her enemies. She's seen them do stuff like that. But she's also seen Roose Bolton, Stark Bannerman, use and abuse the small folk. So it should ultimately come as no surprise that Hoster did the same thing. Eris burned people alive, so Hoster rose in rebellion. But when Lord Goodbrook rebelled against him, Hoster burned down this village. As Notch says, the next Lord Goodbrook was able to make peace, but he wasn't able to bring back the dead, any more than Thoros can bring back Ned. Only Beric has come back, and only part of him. There's a line I love from Wolf Hall, Hilary Mantel's novel Wolf Hall, when she describes all the, the hideous things that uh, English armies did when they invaded the continent, and she concludes with, The kings can forgive each other, the people scarcely can. And that's what I think about with this with this empty village. And I love how quickly George handles this. Gendry gives Arya, quote, a queer look, that's all, but it contains multitudes. Gendry joined the Brotherhood because he believes in their cause, protecting the smallfolk against the various factions exploiting them. Now he's reminded that Arya belongs to one of those factions, and he's having trouble reconciling that with his feelings for her. Is she Ari, his companion through those long nights on the road and at Harrenhal? Or is she Arya of House Stark? destined to return to a life of being a princess in a castle, a castle ruled by mass murderers. The sins of the father, and grandfather in this case, keep piling up. It's another scene about the persistence of memory. The past is a burden on Arya that complicates her feelings about returning to her pack. Are the people who did this
1: really her pack? Tamo 7 has no love for the Tullys, recalling how Lysa had sent him up to the Vale, only to be robbed of everything but his harp, and then being forced to sing the name Day boy and King Without Courage to the guards of the Bloody Gate. His story will get cut short by Thoros, but since Tamo 7 looks to be secretly working with the Tullys in A Feast for Crows, all this history may come back in The Winds of Spring. So when Thoro sees Riverrun being besieged in his flames, it presents a crisis of what to do with Arya. Even if the castle isn't under siege yet, it doesn't look like Robbercat are there. Would Arya recognize the beefish on sight? He's probably the one in a cutoff shirt, Arya. <laughs> she shakes her head, though, and it becomes decision time. Tom is wary of going to Riverrun on the Tully fact alone, much less if they get trapped as the Lannisters invest the castle. Lem just wants to be done with Arya and get paid. But these these are Beric's men, and Beric has his own plan. Step one of which is, don't be taken alive. He either lives, or he dies for good. So instead of running into the lion's jaws, he plans a series of reconnaissance maneuvers to size up the battlefield moving forward. But the thought of further delay, or another stay at the a- Acorn Hall Airbnb, freaks <laughs> Arya the fuck out. She just wants to go home, now, and to be away from the hollow lies of the Knights of the Hollow Hill. She thinks she should have gone it alone, this whole time, forgoing her new pack for a dream of her old one. Despite a series of childish outbursts this chapter, Arya does settle down here at the end and means to return herself to the camp when Sandor Clegane shows up to steal her away. Arya's last words are remembering the lyrics of the Baha Men, who let the dogs out. Who? 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 Who knew they were
0: singing about Tywin this whole time? <laughs> And I gotta say, on reread, I think Arya's motivations for running away here are pretty weak. They're mm-hmm. stronger in the show, where Beric has just sold Gendry to Melisandre. Here, it does feel to me a little bit like Arya is just running away because George needs her to.
1: Mm-hmm. Like,
0: Arya thinks about how the Lightning Lord lied, but did he, though? Like, it's not Beric's fault that Robb and Catelyn left Run. I mean, to be fair, I think it's less about any one thing than it is a cumulative effect, building on running away from Edric earlier in the chapter. Edric made Arya feel bad about her family, as did that ruined village. Now it's going to take even longer to reach her family, and all of that just comes crashing down on her at once. The dam breaks, and she just has to run, be on her own, because she feels like she can't trust anyone else. And that's how she loses them. We will never see Beric Dondarian in the story again. The last time we see him is here, declaring that he won't be taken alive. And yeah, he won't. He'll give up his last life to Catelyn instead. We won't see most of the Brotherhood again until the epilogue, and Gendry specifically won't show up again until Brienne's POV very late in the Feast for Crows. Arya is abruptly severed from her pack, and it turns out that's not really what she wanted. (laughs) Be careful what you wish for. George plays this perfectly. As soon as Arya hardens her heart against her pack, she runs into Sandor, the ultimate loner, who would probably agree with her that Beric is nothing but a liar. Sandor is a dark reflection of who Arya could become if she loses all connections. And, of course, he now becomes her escort to the Red Wedding, where she loses more connections than ever before. So, moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork, we kind of skipped over the the meat, the import of the Ghost of High Hearts prophecies, because they kind of made more sense here, and most of her visions, especially at this point coming back on reread, can be pretty easily explained— the drowned crow on the faceless man's shoulder is Euron, having paid the faceless man to kill Balon. The dog descending on the goat is Gregor Clegane going after Vargo Hote. The red wedding and the purple wedding both show up, as you said. But what's with the maid slaying a giant in a castle built of snow? That
1: That seems like the one that hasn't happened yet, or has it? I think it's both. It's like Schrodinger's <laughs> prophecy here. Sure. Um, I think it's one of those things where I think uh, the end of Sansa's arc in A Storm of Swords, where she builds the castle out of snow and slaps uh, sweet Robin Aaron really nicely. Um, I think that's a way where um, George could have the reader thinking, ah, this part of the prophecy played out. And it is kind of a consequential part of Sansa's story, and it's contained within this book. So it kind of feels like you can have the reader check that box thinking we got this one done. But I do think it will be the actual Castle Made of Snow being Winterfell. Um, And I think the giant will be represented by Littlefinger. I think that's something the show kind of got approximately right. I think their storylines intersect and it should be Sansa overthrowing Littlefinger. And it would make sense doing it in Winterfell or in the name of Winterfell because uh, we know Littlefinger's got Big machinations of combining the Vale and Winterfell for his own ends, and he already holds Harrenhal. Um, so I imagine he's the giant, and that also ties in with the giant of Bravos, where Littlefinger's family is originally from. Uh, I think that's the neatest idea for me. But uh, do you have any other ideas on it? I totally agreed. I always thought it was a, a little weak to use giant
0: symbolism for Littlefinger because he's so barely connected to Bravos. But there is the irony in, in that him being kind of short and called Littlefinger, and then he's a giant in the vision. Mm-hmm. That is, I think that's probably an irony George is playing with. And yeah, I love that. I love that little game, that setup, because that that shows you that George is thinking through how to write specifically for readers who are going to be trying to figure things out. So mm-hmm. he, I think he is, he is deliberately trying to fool you with that that little moment with Sweet Robin, and so you think it's all wrapped up. But it, I think it makes perfect sense for it to be Littlefinger instead, because Littlefinger is also part of that scene with the snow castle. He kind of like like mockingly asks if it's okay for him to come inside and talks about how he always thought about Winterfell as a cold, dark place where Catelyn was stolen away from him. So it, it fits absolutely perfectly that, that he would go down there and that Sansa, the Littlefinger's daughter slash Catelyn reborn, he can't seem to make up his mind, which she is to him, <laughs> that she would be the instrument of his downfall. And I think it makes sense also that is that the Ghost of High Heart sees that linked to the Purple Wedding because Littlefinger was partially responsible for the Purple Wedding and did it in part to have the opportunity to snatch Sansa away. So it's, just, it's almost like she's seeing like the two endpoints of, of the Sansa-Littlefinger story together right there. So totally agreed. All right, so moving on into a theory and discussion. As you said, this is, George drops a big pile of Dane exposition in our lap in this chapter. Kind of needs to get it out somewhere. He picks this chapter. And then, like I said, we part from the Brotherhood. We don't see Beric again. We see some of the Brotherhood members in the epilogue to A Storm of Swords. We see some more again when Brienne runs into them. But we don't see Edric Dane. And in the, it's the appendix to either feast or dance. I don't remember which off the top of my head. Uh, It's, we're given to believe that part of the Brotherhood broke off from uh, the pack that was led by Lady Stoneheart, some Barrack loyalists who are disillusioned that have since moved on. So where, how do you think, if at all, Edric Dane is going to be worked back in?
1: Yeah, I, d- I definitely think he comes back in some fashion, if not an important role. I do think we do see him again. I think there's two obvious spots where we find him. One is, as you mentioned, kind of in that Brotherhood uh, offshoot that uh, kind of separated themselves following the Lady Stoneheart thing, um, and that means he could possibly show up in the Riverlands with a Red Wedding 2.0, something at River Run, or besieging Jane Westerling's caravan over to Casterly Rock. Um, the other thing, of course, is he is Lord of Starfall, and and we do know there is some shit going down in Starfall with House Dane elsewhere in the Dornish plot um, with, you know, the Dark Star going there. Um, this is one of the cases where I do wonder what George may have originally had planned with a five year gap because Ned, uh, Edric Dane at age 17 grabbing hold of Dawn uh, makes a little more sense than, say, maybe a 14 year old kid who's about Arya size at this point. Um, <laughs> it hasn't stopped George before, so I'm not saying that's in any way like stopping him. You know, Jon Snow's wielding long claw at a 14 year old boy already. Already. So, um, but it is something where I do wonder since he does show up here in a storm of swords before George had to abandon the five year gap, what kind of plans he might have had for him otherwise?
0: Yeah, totally agreed there. You know, we talk about how George had originally intended to age up uh, everybody, obviously, uh, across the five year gap, but especially the younger characters so they would be more capable or just more convincingly capable of things that they were going to be doing. And I think Edric Dane also suffered that. I think you can see him set up here to play a significant role and the Danes as a whole, maybe we're going to play a more significant role before he had to kind of rework how he was going to tell the Dorner story. And so now he's kind of kind of invented Ari Hoda's little Dark Star side quest, I think in large part just to get us to Starfall, to have an excuse to have a POV at Starfall, even though Ari Hoda doesn't know about and wouldn't care about R plus L equals J. But I, <laughs> I do think, you know, it might be one of those, you know, George will mind some dramatic irony, some tension by maybe something is revealed to us and something area Hoda sees or hears, but he doesn't get why it's important, but that the reader does might be what he does. And Edric Dane's ultimate role might just be to deliver whatever that is. And then he, he retreats back to the wings. I hope it's more than that, but that might, that might be kind of the, the crumbs that George kind of left himself of what was originally going to be a larger story. And then, yeah, who knows about Dawn? He might have to have Edric wield it anyway, or have someone else wield it. Cause that's, that's been built up too much to not, not play any role at all.
1: I also like how you are comparing him to like a young Rhaegar, and it would be funny to see Edric Dane cross paths with young Grift, and like Varys being like, "Oh wow, this could even looks more like the part that." Where were you? <laughs> could have used you, kid. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: There's, there's, there's just one too many blue and purple haired kids running, blue and purple eyed kids running around. You just can't keep track of them all. So that is going to wrap us up for A Storm of Swords Aria 8. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review in your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastASOIAF where our patrons get early access to our episodes, exclusive episodes every month, and more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastASOIAF or at Instagram. And you can shoot us an email at notacastASOIAF at gmail.com. You can find me at BorQuentin on Twitter. And I'm at ManuclearBomb. So next up in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's going to be A Storm of Swords, Jamie Six, in which Jamie dreams of Brienne, among others, and takes a leap for love. What's more romantic than killing a bear? I can only think of about 700 things, but hey, it <laughs> but works for their relationship. Eventually, on you know, the 701st wedding anniversary—I think that's the bear one. I think that's—I think that's the, <laughs> the bear skin wedding. The bear skin wedding, exactly, exactly. And we're going to be having a guest on for that episode. Our friend Michal, who we've had on for a couple episodes before, is coming on for Jamie Six. That's going to be great. Really looking forward to having her on. So we'll be uh, doing that in a couple weeks. So uh, thanks again for listening. We will see you next time in Westeros for A Storm of Swords, Jamie Six.